Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast, April 16th, 2021, episode 57. How are you on this nice, sunny, wintry, snowy morning in, in Colorado, David? Yeah, we got screwed. The weatherman screwed us. We're doing a foreign <laughs> affairs discussion today, uh, Democracy on the Defense by Yasha Munk. Um, yeah, it look, looks like a good one, David. Yeah, and... Um, this is our, just our second episode of the week, even though it's Friday. We've had uh, stuff going on this week. We'll be back probably with a fuller schedule next week. And then we may actually readjust the schedule once summer comes, because I want to do some hiking, and that might get in the way of podcasting every morning. But we could we could probably car- carve out an hour to do it. But these foreign affairs discussions take a bit longer, because we read the whole article... And then we sort of analyze it from our perspectives, which is not foreign policy experts. Um, so that's the level of analysis that we're on. Um, and we read, and also we read the article so that it's not just what we think; it's actually what they're saying. Because a lot of what you, what you get over the air is like just people's thoughts and and the. Spinning what other people say, and what but we actually read the article, yep. so you can actually see exactly what he says. There's our opinion. You can have a different opinion. People can take this different ways. And this this one today is from Foreign Affairs, and uh, we want to uh, uh, the Sons of Sequoia. We have a, a subscription to it, uh, and uh, just just to uh, uh, encourage people to to. Uh, uh, Subscribe to Foreign Affairs. Uh, yeah. We do. And the uh, May-June issue is out. I just got an email this morning. So if you subscribe, you won't get this issue that we're reading from, but you will get the next one. Uh, I am going to call you back real quick because you're not showing up on some of my screens. So. Uh, it didn't work though. Yeah, but I'd like it to work. Okay, let me try it one more time. Okay, we're back and everything's good. There we go. I'd rather just have it right at the beginning, just take a few seconds, yep. and then it's good for the rest of the episode. So, shall and we you know, do- And you know, David, a lot of these podcasts, a lot of the YouTubes, a lot of the these uh, uh, streaming uh, uh, programs, they have a whole staff of people behind them doing this stuff. But I want everyone to know out there that I just sit here and talk. David does everything behind the scenes of setting it up and posting it and bringing on the visuals and audio, video, and everything, and uh, and also airing it and posting it. So, Dave, so good job, David. Thanks. Yeah, it'd be nice to have a producer and then uh, just focus on. But it's also nice. I see this uh, guy. He's a conservative, uh, not conservative, a liberal uh, commentator, and he's got a big following. We could find him. I'll find him real quick. His name is Sam Cedar, S-E-D-E-R. Um, let me see. Yeah, he's got a million, a million subscribers on YouTube. That's a lot, I think. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, let me pull up the Sam Cedar. Okay, and you look at his videos, and this is not just, I mean, I don't want to put him on blast, but uh, it's a Zoom call. Let's do this one about uh, Tucker Carlson. Uh... It's a Zoom call, and you know, they have the, the green boundaries, and then they do have packages pulled up, but he'll be talking, and Sam Sater will yell at his producer, pause, pause. And it, it's, it does seem a little bit unprofessional <laughs> for a channel with a million subscribers for them not to have, you know, his ability to control the video himself. It's weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, even channels with a million subscribers and multiple staff, they have their technical issues as well. That's um, right. That's right. Um, so, yeah, we're focusing on just trying to do the best we can with what we have, which is, I think, what everyone should do in this crazy, crazy world. And whatever happens, we enjoy what we do, and we just have fun, right, David? That's right. And so enjoying what we do, this is going to be a depressing one. Democracy on the defense. Turning back well, the authoritarian tide by Yasha Munk. I, <laughs> depressing. I think it's stimulating. I think it's stimulating to, one, yeah, there's going to be turning back the tide on the authoritarian tide. Uh, the uh, We're going to be talking about uh, authoritarianism and the democracy and but on the other hand uh it, it makes you appreciate what you have and also don't take it for granted mm-hmm. yeah I, I think i think lessons to be learned and so also a little bit of uh be, be thankful be yeah. thankful for our country we have a great country okay democracy on the defense and uh, you can see on my screen, I have pulled up Yasha Monk, associate professor at Johns Hopkins University, senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. That is the think tank that publishes foreign affairs and the founder of Persuasion. So I'm going to quickly. Uh, while you look at that, why are you going to find Persuasion? I want to find what Persuasion is. I bet you it's, I don't know. Yeah. Because we. When we, in our discussion, and I think everyone should do this, is not just what is said and what we think, but also we do a, a meta-analysis and saying, well, who is this guy? Where did he come from? Uh, who, how would this be different if it uh, came from UK or uh, from, from another university, let's say in France or something? Okay, so it looks like uh, Persuasion, Yasha Monk. Let's find the Twitter. This is Yasha Monk. Some guy... Um, Persuasion is a, I guess, publication. I don't know. I, I like it's it's interesting these days because you like if you want to minimize something, you say, "Oh, it looks like a blog." It's a blog, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it it does look like a blog, right? It does. Yeah, it does. It's persuasion. Here's all of his. And look, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It's like seven of these things. Mm-hmm. We have 57. Oh, no, but there's a see all. Oh, see all. Okay. And oh, he's got more. persuasion staff. He's got multiple writers. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so, yeah, it looks like he's trying to publish just his own brand and it looks like a lot of it is journalism or at least you know discussion commentary who decides uh-huh. what's racist what america owes afghanistan so they're position pieces but 
Um, it looks like they're a little more policy heavy than perhaps yeah. something and you might and you might and see different on, authors. There's yeah. different authors on there, but more policy heavy than something you might see on Fox News, if that makes sense. Yeah. Or which, which, is, which is another uh, to me that's another positive of uh, foreign affairs. It's not just one side. Uh, they'll pull people from the right, the left, and and all over the place. Uh, mm-hmm. So so they're looking at all the different views. And I believe that's what you should do. I think you should not have an authoritarian state where it's only one view and that's the only view you, you're allowed to see. I, I think it's healthy to have to see all views. Yeah. Um, I also think it's healthy to look at what Xi Jinping's party line is. Because mm-hmm. unlike Putin, where, I mean, Putin will sort of, I heard this story, of course, what you hear in the Western media, who knows, but doctors, they were complaining about the levels of coronavirus patients in the wards at the hospitals in Russia, and multiple doctors fell out of windows in Russia. They, quote, fell out of windows and were gravely injured or died because they were complaining about how the government was not giving them enough resources to fight the coronavirus in Russia. Now... I don't think that China is that cartoonishly thuggish. Uh, I don't think that, I mean, I think that Putin is sort of overtly a villain, which was always sort of strange to me that uh, the former president kowtowed to him, you know, sort of gave him free range. Uh, I do think China, they're sort of entering an adversarial position towards the United States just by virtue of their expanding power and by virtue of sort of propagating a ideology, authoritarianism, and state centrality that isn't the same as ours, which is sort of liberalism and allowing the people to, to sort of speak their mind and have differing views. Uh, so I see China as pitted against us just in terms of great power competition, whereas Russia, their level of power is a fraction of China's or the United States. And so... A lot of the stuff that they do just seems cartoonishly evil, at least in the eyes of me, an average American. Well, you have a saying, which I probably think we will use every single episode when we talk about these things, is is where you stand depends on where you sit. Mm -hmm. And the position that Putin is in in Russia and his power or lack of and and, uh, China and even other authoritarian states really depend on how they act. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's, there's, again, uh, when you think about what people say, what people do, a lot of times what I've seen is that they'll just interpret it based on their perspective. And they don't, they don't think about, well, if you were where that person was, how would you do it? Mm-hmm. You know, think about the other person. Think about uh, these people, where they, where they sit. Uh, when they take a stand, where are they sitting? Where are they from? A lot of times there's, there's a lot of reasons why they do what they do. Mm-hmm. Not that it's right, not that it's right or wrong, but try to understand what the other person is saying yes. and why. So we have this picture here of Xi and Vladimir Putin. Uh, and Putin almost looks like he has respect for Xi in this picture. Of course. It does. Um, now, <laughs> let's contrast that with... Uh, <laughs> uh, 
they're they're walking side by side with a suit on, and Xi Jinping is walking forward, and Putin walking next to him, looking at him. Yeah. Now, what about this picture? Do you see the same? Oh, for crying out loud! Oh no! <laughs> oh wow! For those people who can't see this, oh, Trump, they're shaking hands with Putin and Trump, and Trump is puckering up like he's going to kiss Putin. Uh huh. He's leaning toward him with his with his his mouth puckered up, and Putin looks disgusting, like trying to avoid him. Like, what are you doing? You know, oh, my goodness. He'd rather be anywhere else but there. That's right. Oh, my goodness. Here's one. Of course, you know, you could get a bad picture, a bad frame. You can. You can. You can. But actually, that's just anecdotal. Uh-huh. Uh, but the way, but what's not anecdotal is the way Trump did. He did uh, kowtow to, uh, to Putin. Yeah, in Helsinki. And... Uh... Right. And of course, this week, Biden has announced a bunch of, uh, you know, he announced that Russia was responsible for the solar winds hack and they are going to pay. He's expelling diplomats, which were probably spies. And so, I mean, there's action being taken against Russia that would have been unthinkable in the period of time when, you know, we had a president who bent over backwards to accommodate Russia. And I don't think that there was strategy to that. I don't think that if you ask a hundred conservative and liberal foreign policy strategists, they could tell you the the reason. Because there is no grand strategy in sort of allowing Putin to run roughshod over America when America has a preponderance of power over Russia. So I think that came down to a, a personal thing between... Uh, but enough of that, enough of our prognostication. Let's read Yasha Monk's Democracy on the Defense, <laughs> Turning okay. Back the Authoritarian Tide. After the Cold War ended, it looked like democracy was on the march, but that confident optimism was misplaced. With the benefit of hindsight, it is clear that it was naive to expect democracy to spread to all corners of the world. The authoritarian turn of recent years reflects the flaws and failings of democratic systems. Most analyses of the precarious state of contemporary democracy begin with a similar depiction. They are not altogether incorrect, but they omit an important part of the picture. The story of the last two decades is not just one of democratic weakness, it is also one of authoritarian strength. Since the 1990s, autocratic regimes have advanced in terms of economic performance and military might. Dictators have learned to use digital tools to oppress opposition movements in sophisticated ways. They have beaten back democratic campaigns that once looked promising, taken hold of countries that seem to be on the way to becoming more democratic, and vastly increased their international influence. What the world has seen is less a democratic retreat than an authoritarian resurgence. Autocrats, long focused on bare survival, are now on the offensive. The coming decades will feature a long and drawn-out contest between democracy and dictatorship. The outcome of that contest is not foreordained. To prevail, the United States and its democratic allies need to understand the stakes of this historic moment and work together to protect global democracy in more imaginative and courageous ways than they have in the past. They will also need to solve a dilemma created by the tension between two core objectives, stemming backsliding within their own ranks, on the one hand, and maintaining a unified front against authoritarian regimes, such as those in China 
China and Russia on the other. Simply put, it will be hard to oppose anti-democratic governments in countries whose support is crucial to confronting full-throated, increasingly assertive authoritarians. Dealing with that dilemma will require a skillful approach that preserves the possibility of cooperation with countries that have questionable democratic bona fides, while reserving close partnerships for genuinely democratic allies. It will also mean abandoning democracy promotion in favor of democracy protection, seeking for the most part to secure rather than expand the democratic world. There's the introduction. Yeah, good introduction. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the way I took that is that the best way to undermine democracy and to support authoritarianism across the world and globe is to not come together, is <laughs> to separate yourself from like-minded allies. Uh, and so when you when you are not when you're not together, when the democratic states are not together, that just supports authoritarianism. Yeah, I, I, I also say we had this idea, and I think that this is a big idea in political science. It was a big idea when I was studying political science, you know, after high school in my undergraduate education, that there's like this golden arches theory of diplomacy. If you liberalize market and there's a McDonald's in every country, there will be no more war. And this guy saying that was naive, you know, like so market interconnectedness will lead everyone to democratic forms of government. And what we've seen is that, like he's saying, authoritarianism is resilient. And those ideas that, oh, if you open up the markets, everyone will just naturally gravitate towards democracy isn't true. I mean, you, if you look at the United States, we're gradually sort of gravitating away from democracy. We had just had an election where the guy that lost was calling his fingers off, trying to get state officials to overturn the, the, that election. And it didn't work because we have rules in place. And so what's happening? We're seeing state legislatures sort of take away those safeguards so that the next time that happens, you know, if the person you don't want to win wins, you can overturn the will of the people. And that seems anti-democratic to me. Yeah, me too. And and you're absolutely right. We're getting going more and more toward um, if you don't win, well, then you change the system to where you can win. Mm -hmm. And don't and don't let the system uh, work the way it was designed to work. So should we get into the next section? Because I think that it's a natural. It looks like just from the title, I haven't read the article yet. It's a natural extension of what we're saying. OK, do you want to read it or should I read it? Okay, I'll try to read it. Okay. Authoritarianism on authoritarians, authoritarians on the march. Donald Trump's tenure in the White House cast unprecedented. Un <laughs> I'm having trouble getting started here. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump's tenure in the White House cast unprecedented doubt on which side the United States would take in the conflict between democracy and dictatorship. Even before 2016, Washington regularly supported autocratic governments when the prospect of finding democratic allies in a strategically important country looked slim. But the past four years marked the first time that a U.S. president seemed to openly favor dictatorships over democracies and boosted autocratic forces within democratic allies. Trump called the de desirability of NATO into question. He repeatedly refused to condemn autocratic attempts to interfere 
in democratic elections, murder dissidents on foreign soil, or put bounties on the heads of US soldiers. He expressed admiration for dictators, including Russia's Vladimir Putin, Egypt's Abel Fatah al-Sisi, and North Korea's Kim Jong-un, even though they and their countries shared little in the way of ideology or geostrategic importance. Under Trump, the United States also promoted extremist forces within other democratic countries. In an interview with the far-right news outlet Breitbart, Richard Grinnell, then the U.S. ambassador to Germany, insinuated that he sought to empower populist movement across Europe. Meanwhile, Pete Hoekstra, the U.S. ambassador to the Netherlands, held a private gathering for members of an extremist Dutch political party and its donors at the U.S. embassy. Back home, Trump himself welcomed a series of authoritarian populists to the White House, including Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban and Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Put dip diplomatically, during Trump's tenure in office, the United States ceased to be the so-called leader of the free world. Put more bluntly, large parts of the Trump administration effectively defected to the autocratic camp. On the surface, the moderate leaders of powerful democracies in Europe and elsewhere have little in common with Trump. Little love was lost between him and Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, or Angela Merkel, the German chancellor. But despite those European leaders' uh, putative uh, support for democratic values and their elegant speeches in support of human rights, their actual deeds have repeatedly aided and abetted the forces of autocratic around the world, autocracy around the world. When Merkel was struggling to deal with a large inflow of refugees from the Middle East and Sub-Saharan Africa in 2016, for instance, she spearheaded a deal between the EU and Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan that cut off one of the main routes for migrants headed to mainland Europe. Even as Erdogan uh, thought, uh, sought to concentrate power in his own hands and was busy jailing more than 100 journalists, the lucrative agreement helped him cement his political standing. Germany and several other European states also pressed ahead with Nord Stream 2, a Russian-built gas pipeline that would secure their energy supplies while leaving some Central and Eastern European democracies immensely vulnerable to pressure from the Kremlin. The most important service that Merkel and other European leaders provided the autocratic camp, however, was their failure to confront democratic backsliding in neighboring countries such as Hungary and Poland. Over the past decade, governments in both Budapest and Warsaw have rapidly eroded the rule of law, weakened the separation of powers, undermined the free press, and rendered elections deeply unfair. Freedom House, an organization that tracks the status of democratic governance around the world, recently downgraded Hungary to partly free, a sad first for a member of the EU. Even so, Brussels has yet to levy serious sanctions on either Hungary or Poland, and both countries continue to receive billions of euros from the EU. Because the bloc has failed to exercise any effective control over the money's distribution, it has essentially provided the anti-democratic populists who lead the governments in both places with a slush fund to reward their political allies and punish their adversaries. So this is, I like this section because 
I think during the Trump administration, people would point to Macron and Merkel and say, you know, if the U.S. isn't going to be the leaders, uh, the dem- the leader, the vanguard of democracy, it falls on European leaders to be the vanguard mm-hmm. of democracy. And this guy is saying, yeah, Trump had no love lost for democracy, and he embraced authoritarianism, but the actions of the EU during this time were not really pro-democratic either. They're, they did some key things that sort of signaled that they didn't support democracy to the extent that perhaps they should. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I don't know. I, I, and I may just throw this out there. This is not really, maybe it's way in left field and, and away from the argument. But when I read this stuff, I, I always think this is from the perspective of political science, uh, politics, uh, economics, uh, and governments and decisions. And I'm thinking, uh, why does this happen? You know, I would love to have a maybe a, a sociologist or a psychologist or or someone saying, well, is this not is this not the same thing we've seen in history? A historian. Same thing in history for centuries and centuries and centuries that it does go back and forth and back and forth. Why? Because people don't change. No. And so, uh, or I mean, like the Nord Pipeline, doing business with Russia that would bring Central and Eastern European countries, make Central and Eastern European countries more beholden to the Kremlin. That's what they said. The effect of this German deal with this pipeline. Mm-hmm. But Germany looks at that and they say, well. Our energy future is important. And our sovereignty, we can shore up our energy supply for several decades by building this pipeline. Yes, uh, perhaps the Baltic states or the Ukraine or Belarus will be more beholden to the Kremlin, but that's a sacrifice we're willing to make because we're sacrificing countries that are in us for the benefit of us. Uh, What I'm getting at is this. It's... Human nature. Mm-hmm. It's real politic, I guess is what they call it. You look at the the benefits and the costs, and you weigh them, and you choose undemocratic means to achieve your goals because you like those outcomes better. Right. So you don't choose democracy on principle. You choose democracy out of convenience. Yep. And a lot of politics are theoretical but in practice, a lot of it's convenience and uh, and uh, what what what's going to suit you and benefit you. Yeah, there's a Dead Kennedys. They're the uh, punk band from the '80s. And let me pull this up. They have one of my favorite album titles. I think it's a greatest hits album, so it's not really a. But their greatest hits album was entitled. Give me convenience or give me death. (laughs) (laughs) And I think there's something to that in the modern world, right? There's a lot to that. There's a whole lot to that. Yeah. So let's continue on, shall we? Yeah, yeah, because because, uh, the the consumer will give up up a lot of rights uh, for their convenience. Just look at everything that happens on your cell phone. That's right. Uh, It makes your life way more convenient, but you're sort of sacrificing quite a bit of personal information. A lot. 
So continuing on, too little, too late. Uh, this is what was the last section about how EU is their culpable in the de decline of democracy and the rise of authoritarianism. Obviously, America's culpable as well. But don't look to the EU as the last bastion of democratic freedom. They've done their own things to allow the rise of authoritarianism as well. Too little, too late. Let's talk about what's going on now. Too okay. little, too late. Back to the article. This shameful period of inaction in the face of authoritarian resurgence is now, hopefully, coming to an end. In the United States, Joe Biden's victory in last year's presidential election put politicians deeply committed to democratic values back in power. In the EU, the attacks on democracy by some member states have become so blatant that several crusading politicians, including Mark Rutte, the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, and Sophie Ntveld and Sergei Lagondinsky, two members of the European Parliament, have forced the bloc to start confronting the authoritarian governments in their midst. But unless democratic leaders recognize the extent of the authoritarian resurgence and the serious threat it poses, their response is likely to be too little, too late. The EU's attempts to contain autocracy within the bloc is a depressing case study in how half-hearted efforts are likely to fail. In 2020, after years of inaction, the EU finally tried to impose stronger conditions on the funds it disperses across the bloc. A European Commission proposal envisioned a system that would freeze payments to member states if they violated the rule of law in their countries. Poland and Hungary, two likely targets, fought back threatening to veto an EU budget that included funding for vital COVID-19 relief efforts. True to form, European leaders quickly caved. In a com compromise that was designed to save face but mostly demonstrated how autocratic leaders within the U EU are now essentially immune from negative repercussions for their attacks on democracy as long as they give one another political cover, the Commission abandoned the measure's core elements. As a result of the deal, the European Commission still cannot withhold funds when member states take steps to weaken the rule of law. To sanction such states, Brussels instead needs to demonstrate that EU funds are being misspent. In another concession, the Commission promised not to bring any rule of law proceedings against member states until those that are opposed to what is left of the new rules have a chance to contest their constitutionality in front of a European Court of Justice. This effectively guarantees that Orban and other autocratic leaders will win more unfair elections, remaining in power for years to come. In the end, the failed attempt to discipline Hungary and Poland merely illustrated how much impunity autocratic leaders within the EU now enjoy. Across the Atlantic, it is too early to assess how effective the new U.S. administration will be in bolstering democracy. Initial statements from Biden and members of his senior foreign policy team suggest that they take the autocratic threat seriously and are keen to restore the United States to its role as leader of the free world. A year ago, Biden wrote in these pages that the triumph of democracy and liberalism over fascism and autocracy created the free world. But this contest does not just define our past. It will define our future as well. This attitude marks a real shift from the last four years. Under Biden's leadership, the short-term survival of NATO will, thankfully, no longer be in doubt. And countries that depend on the United States for their security will rightly breathe a sigh of relief. Over the next years, the United States is also more likely to work closely with long-standing democratic allies than with either autocratic states or backsliding democracies. In contrast to Trump, Biden will 
undoubtedly have better relationships with Democratic leaders, such as Merkel and South Korean President Moon Jae, than, in, than with autocratic ones such as Erdogan or Sisi. Biden is unlikely to invite anti-democratic populists such as Orban or Modi to the White House, as Trump did on several occasions. And under Anthony Blinken's leadership, the State Department will once again express concern over attacks on human rights and free institutions around the world. Populists and autocrats will have to pay a price for attacks on core democratic values. Biden and his team have also signaled their intention to convene a high-profile summit of democracies. Although the incoming administration has not released details about the summit's timing or content, the proposal's intention is clear, to reinvigorate democratic countries in their fight against autocratic threats. If done right, the summit could send an important signal about the United States' commitment to democratic values. All these changes will represent a notable improvement over the Trump administration. But even if they are fully implemented, they likely won't suffice to stem the authoritarian resurgence. The problem is that two of the central goals of these efforts, containing the influence of powerful autocracies and halting backsliding in key democracies, are often in conflict with each other. Any attempt to halt the authoritarian resurgence must simultaneously stop embattled democracies such as India and Poland from joining the ranks of the world's dictatorships and prevent countries such as China and Russia from reshaping the international order. But if Washington wants to contain Russia, it needs to preserve a close relationship with Poland. And if it wants to contain China, it needs to keep India on board. This dilemma will make it difficult for the Biden administration to carry out its pro-democracy agenda. When the United States convenes its proposed summit of democracies, for example, it could safely abstain from inviting countries that are rapidly backsliding and have comparatively little geostrategic importance, such as Hungary. But it will be harder to avoid inviting backsliding democracies such as India or Poland, which because of their size or location are important allies in the U.S. effort to contain the most powerful authoritarian adversaries. Democratic Democracies will never be able to sidestep this predicament entirely. They can, however, be open about the nature of the problem and publicly commit themselves to a consistent strategy. This would require that the leading democratic states clearly distinguish between two levels in their relations with other countries. A lower tier, available to countries that share a geostrategic interest in containing powerful dictatorships, even if they themselves are autocracies or backsliding democracies, in a higher tier for countries that share both democratic values and geostrategic interests. I need to wet my whistle. This is a long section. Yeah, it is. Three more paragraphs. It's a good one, though. This strategy would represent a continuation of past foreign policy in recognizing this need to sustain strategic alliances with countries that are less than fully democratic. But it would also represent a market departure by committing the United States and other powerful democracies to reserving the status of full partner for liberal democracies and downgrading their relationships with other longtime partners if they significantly backslide. Creating this two-tier structure would provide a modest yet real incentive for governments of countries interested in maintaining a relationship with established democracies to end their attacks on the rule of law. It would also provide pro-democracy activists and movements in those countries with evidence of the international benefits of resisting would-be autocrats. Especially in deeply divided states where pro-democracy forces still have some hope of displacing the government through elections, this policy change might just make the difference between aspiring autocrats losing power and their holding on to it. 
At his proposed summit of democracies, Biden should establish criteria for what would constitute a breach of minimum democratic standards and what costs Washington would impose on countries that have failed to live up to them. He should also invite other countries to adopt their own versions of this Biden doctrine. The more developed countries, the more developed democracies pursue this approach, the more powerful its effects will be. Okay, we did it. We got through. <laughs> yeah, that, that was interesting. Uh, my my first thoughts on that is that, yeah, that uh, he, he did paint a picture of how difficult it is. And I agree, it, it, things are very complicated when you look at the reality. Uh, and also, like, like you have said many times, uh, where you stand depends on where you sit. Uh, but also I thought, you know, when you start making changes, uh, you got to be careful with making sweeping changes. You really make sweeping changes by doing small things first and being successful with the small things. Uh, that you got to be careful if you change too much too soon because it can go south on you. Well, I mean, it almost went south in America. So it's like... That's right. It's going to be difficult to get out there and say... Well, we're concerned what's happening in Hungary. We're concerned what's happening in Poland and India and Turkey and Egypt. We're concerned for these places because we're afraid that you might slip into authoritarian rule. And they could say, well, we had that exact same concern for your country when a gang of crazed militants were storming your capital. And your president was egging them on because he lost the election. Like, you claim that you love democracy, but for a couple 10,000 votes in a few key states, you probably wouldn't have a democracy anymore. So, so why are you telling us how to run a democracy? And I, I know that it sounds good when someone says, um, you know, we're going to have a two-tier structure. We're going to resist would-be autocrats. We're going to, you know, only recognize liberal democracies. But I remember, I believe it was in Syria, no, Lebanon, maybe Palestine. We went to war, the United States, to make the world safe for democracy after September 11th. And Hamas won the election. They were the ruling party in Lebanon. And we said, well, we can't recognize that democratically elected government because Hamas is a terrorist organization. It's like, yeah, but if you look at that election, it was less, uh, it was more democratic than the U.S. election where George Bush's campaign manager was the one counting the votes in Florida. You know, she was, Catherine Harris was Secretary of State of Florida. She's in charge of counting the votes. There's a discrepancy of a few hundred. And she says, oh, the guy who I'm campaign manager for won. Election's over. Well, Hamas, that was democracy in action. It just it wasn't the outcome we wanted, so we didn't acknowledge it. So do we actually really want democracy, or do we just want leaders who think like us? Because the result of democracy can be... I, I think that it's... Do you see what I'm saying? You want democracy Absolutely. so yes. that the leaders think like we do. But what if democracy produces leaders that think antithetically to the way that we do. Yeah, do we still support do we still still support the democracy? Then? And they say we're not going to be an authoritarian government. We're going to allow for free and fair democratic elections. We just have a populace where 70% of the people support us. And that's not through coercion. 
You know, if someone rose up and they gained that extra 20% support, they could beat us in a completely legitimate free and fair election. And we would step down from power. It's just where our country is at, our democracy looks different than your democracy because we're a different country. But if that's not what you want it to look like, you say, we're not going to acknowledge that free and fair election. So do you really care about democracy in the first place? Well, it seems like when they say democracy, uh, they really are saying democracy like our democracy. You and our, you and our democracy. Well, well, the United States is very unusual, a very unusual country in the world. And have someone having a democracy just like us, uh, that's not true. That's not going to happen. Every country is different. Every country has a personality. And a democracy in a different country will look different thing. Will will look a different way. Yeah. Well, I, th- and I think a lot. That's that's the disjoint. And I think that when we say we want to protect democracy, what we want to protect is countries like France and Germany. We want to keep Poland from becoming an authoritarian government because then they'll be. We want to keep them in the democratic fold. We want to make sure that India doesn't fall because if they're autocratic. And China's autocratic, you know, that's, it's an ideological divide. But, and I think that he points this out very well. We need those countries as allies, regardless of their governmental structure. So if India falls into authoritarianism under Modi, and he sort of declares himself president for life, but we need them as a counterbalance to China. Well, will we say, uh, we're going to abandon you because you've chosen authoritarianism? No. Like the facts on the ground don't change. We still need India. And and because democracy is it's a form of government, but it's also an ideology, you can say we disagree ideolo- ideologically with the fact that you're an authoritarian leader now, but we're going to offer you the same menu of benefits that we always have because you're our counterbalance to China in, in Asia. Um, so, I mean, it's it's lip service. It's not really policy, right? That's right. In other words, when you talk about democracy, are you talking about a form of government or are you talking about your allies mm-hmm. uh, and, and safety within the world order and, and someone who's going to help you with your values and their values, uh, not necessarily just democracy? Uh, what if you had a democratic state who was not as helpful as an ally uh, than an autocratic state that chose uh, to be an ally to the United States? Yeah. What if, so it, what if you had a state, let's just, let's just say South Korea, highly democratic, and they have an election and they elect a guy and he says, yes, well, the future is not in the West. The future is in the East. So we're going to continue to have our highly democratic, free and fair, open society but our primary trading partner, our primary security partner, our primary ally is going to be China, not the United States. Our security guarantor, our financial guarantor, that will be China. And yeah, we don't necessarily approve of their authoritarian style of government, but they've promised that we'll be allowed to practice democracy. They can practice authoritarianism. And we're just going to, it makes more sense for us to be partnered, to be allies. So you don't need ideological uh, parity to sort of be great power allies. And then Japan says, well, yeah, that kind of makes sense for us too. 
then all of a sudden, you know, East Asia is dominated by China, and we'll say they're throwing their muscle around. But what if their muscle is they're offering better terms for security guarantees, they're offering lower defense costs, they're offering better terms of trade, they have a bigger export market for South Korean and Japanese goods, you know, because as the China uh, buying power increases, it will surpass that of the West in theory, right? If you have 1.2 billion people or more, I don't know, that become a middle class that looks like America, well, America just has 300 million people. So you have four times the amount of people with that buying power. It becomes a more attractive market than shipping the stuff to America, you know? So it's fascinating to me. Is democracy the linchpin that holds all of this together? That's the question that I think this is asking. And I think his answer is it's a linchpin. It's not it's not the magic bullet. It's one of many. Mm-hmm. And and I think the uh, so what so what's to me in my mind begs the question. Uh, so what is the value? And this might be really in left field. What's the value of to let's say the United States is a democratic country. What's the value in in uh, Promoting and to the point from from promoting on one side to requiring on another side uh, a democratic government in another country. Mm-hmm. Why? You know, what? Why do why does the United States want to do that? Is it because better for the country or better for them mm-hmm. in their negotiations with the country or better for a collective bargaining power within the world? Uh, so why do they want that? And and I think that to me that he's saying, like you say, it's just one of the one of the ingredients of your your policy, but it's not the only one. Mm-hmm. And uh, and maybe that's why EU, that's why Merkel and and Macron they they're not necess- they may make decisions that don't seem to fit uh, what you would want them to do, but it's going to help them, and, and it's going to be supporting their. Uh, their needs in their country. Their nation state, not the EU or the ideal of democracy everywhere. That's right. But it benefits right. their nation state because the nation state has different goals than a political science professor from Johns Hopkins University. <laughs> um, I mean, wanting democracy is noble, I suppose. And, you know, not wanting authoritarianism. I'm, I'm team democracy, honestly. I really am. But... Um, to what extent should it be a source of conflict? You know, so they're trying to withhold funds from Poland and Hungary, and they've realized the bylaws they've written into the European Parliament, the European Commission, don't allow them to, because as long as, you know, the authoritarian states within the EU stick together, they can sort of circumvent any withholding of sanctions. And that's what this last section was about. But, and also, Poland has geostrategic importance to the United States and to Europe. So even though they're backsliding into authoritarianism, they need to stay on the EU side. And as long as the EU is sending them millions of dollars in sort of basically federal funds, it's not it's a con, con, confederation. What is the EU? Would you call it a confederation of states? <laughs> I suppose. Yeah, I suppose. But it's it's like federal funds. Basically, Poland gets right. what would be the equivalent of 
you know, like when, when a red state has a disaster, they need all these federal funds, and then they say, we're independent. You know, just when something goes wrong, do we need California and New York to bail us out? But the rest of the time, they're, they're godless heathens, and we should secede <laughs> from them. Um, but yeah. <laughs> that's, that's getting into small ball U.S. politics. Um, well, I, I, keep, I keep thinking of, of uh, I don't know if this is correct or not. This might just reveal my, my armchair and lack of political science knowledge. But I keep thinking of families, you know. When you have different families uh, in a neighborhood, like in our neighborhood here, each house is a family, you know, there's people living there. But like the way we eat dinner, the way we talk, the way we uh, help each other, support each other, the way we interact is very different than the way inter they interact in their family. Mm -hmm. They don't do it the same way. Like I, I know I have certain... Uh, you know that I I believe you know we're we're a team, and that means that I will act certain ways and and we act certain ways with each other. Like you watch these but reality it's shows, the, it's not the same in other families. They don't do it that way. Well, are they wrong because they don't do it the way I do it? Should I force them to live their? Should I force that man over there to deal with his children like I deal with my children? Uh, I I keep thinking of that. Yeah, um, well, like is, we watch these reality. No, like we watch these reality shows and uh, a ch child, you know, or a husband and wife will be screaming at each other, saying terrible things. Or like, you know, the children will be screaming at the parents saying terrible things and they go off their separate ways and they come back and it's all, it's all love. Well, if we were ever at the point where we were screaming at each other, like that would be very, very, very serious. You know, that would create, like, that's just not how we operate. That level of yeah. emotion where it's like you're screaming at someone and that and then you watch these reality and of course the reality shows there, there's a reason why they make a reality show about these people. Their emotions are so high that they fly off the handle every single episode. But it's like that's not who we are. So if someone flew off the handle, that would cause a deep rift that would take time to heal. You know, these families, they're screaming at each other. By the end of the episode, they're all sitting around the dinner table having a good time. And it's like that wouldn't happen with us. But we also would never scream at each other. You know, and the reality shows where, you know, we, we watch a lot of them. We think how people interact with one another. I said that's terrible. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't say that to someone. I wouldn't do that. I, I just don't live that way. Uh, well, which one's right and which one's wrong? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I'm I'm the U.S. You have to live like I do, or I have to live like they do. Uh, no. Uh, well, but can we get along even though? Yes, because when we come together in society, there is a form of interaction within the neighborhood that you deal, you work with people within this neighborhood. But that doesn't say you've got to live the way I live. Yeah, it's like uh, someone at work that's really good at their job. You, know, you can always count on them to turn in their reports on time. Or um, if you're looking for something and you know that it's their department, it'll be done and it'll be in the right format. and It'll be easy to find if you're trying to use it for your uh, department's uses. And you always say that person's reliable. They're trustworthy. When they say they're going to get something done, they get it done on time. But I wouldn't invite them over for dinner. And there's someone in this other department and they screw up all the time. Their stuff comes in late. There's errors on the forms that I have to create, uh, correct. 
but they're entertaining. And I would want to hang out with them on the weekend. Go get go to the bar and get a beer with them. I mean, that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, it's just like there's different – people have different attributes just like nation states have different attributes. Uh, that's sort of reducing it to a very ridiculous – but do you see what I'm saying? There's certain nations you'd want to have a beer with and there's certain nations you can sort of count on to make sure all the trains run on time. Yeah. I think that's a very good analogy, and that's exactly what I'm thinking of, that uh, I think people will mix things. Even even uh, uh, leaders of nations will mix that kind of thing. Like I keep telling people, I, I teach business, I keep telling people in business, look, uh, the, the, the way you interact with people in business, in a company, in your job is not the same. You interact, interact with your buds at the bar, you know. Mm-hmm. It's not the same, you know. And there's there's it's two different social orders here. And learn how to act within a company. And that's not like he says. Oh, and also they're your friends. They're your business associates. They may be friends outside, but they don't have to be mm-hmm. uh, to be to to work together. Yeah. And sometimes. People work together really well that you don't like each other mm-hmm. because you know exactly what you have to do and you do it. Well, I think it's the same thing with nations. I think you're right, David. It's the same way with nations in that that people cross those boundaries and cross those borders and that we can work with them. That doesn't mean we have they have to do it exactly the way we do. And I think if you push democracy, be careful how you push democracy it's kind of, I guess the, the saying is you throw the baby out with a wash. Okay, well, okay, the, the democracy is only one thing. There's a lot of other things around that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been studying history. Before we get back into it, we should get back into it because we're going to go long. But uh, studying history and the history of, I took, I, I subscribed to the great courses and I've been taking course, I finished it. But the history of England from the Tudors to the Stuarts, Stuarts. And there's Tories and there's Whigs, so there's party politics in later years. In early years, of course, with Henry VIII, there's Anglicans and Catholics, and that's a big thing. And that stayed a big thing in Ireland until the 20th century. And it's fascinating to me. Sometimes it's like, well, we have to preserve Catholicism. We're Jacobites. We need to put James back on the throne because he's the Catholic and, you know, the the Protestant kings— and there's a big faction of people that believe that it's important to preserve Catholicism, and they believe it, I think, in part because Catholicism is the one true religion, but in part because Louis XIV is a Catholic, the Holy Roman Emperor is a Catholic, and having uh, England in the equation, and let's not have a Protestant on the throne in England, let's have a Catholic, you sort of have this continental domination by Catholic forces against you know, German and uh, Dutch forces that are, it's a counterbalance. You're looking for a counterbalance. You want them, you want a Catholic on the throne of Britain because it's a counterbalance to those Protestants in the Netherlands and Germany. And the fascinating thing is, it's sort of like we want a democracy here as a counterbalance to the authoritarians, but it's not really about democracy at all. It's about power. That's right. You, I think you hit the nail on the head, David. It's really about the, really about power, and they have these banners, and under the banner, they'll say, "Do this, do this, do this, follow this, follow this." But really, behind that, underlying that, is something that really is 
sometimes far removed from whatever that banner says mm -hmm. because you're dealing with people. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I love the ability to speak freely. I love the ability to sort of exercise my rights as an American. But I'm sure if I got in a car accident, I would love being in China because the doctors would take care of me. Here, I'd be like, yeah, my legs hurt. And the doctors would be like, I don't believe you. Here's your bill, $100,000. You know, that's sort of how medicine works here. Uh, should we keep... <laughs> oh, man. Should we keep oh, going? Okay. okay. <laughs> The next section is protecting democracy. Am I reading this one? Sure. Protecting democracy. <clears throat> uh, this kind of approach would require policymakers in the United States and Europe to rethink the notion of democracy promotion. For the most part, that term has been used to describe admirable efforts to bolster democratic movements in autocratic countries or fledgling democracies. But at times, the United States and others have abused it misapplying it to destructive attempts to impose democracy by force. The deeper problem, however, is that the very idea of de uh, democracy promotion rests on the assumption that the future will be more democratic than the past. In light of the recent authoritarian resurgence, leaders need to stand this assumption on its head. It is certainly possible that some auto autocracies will uh, democratize over the coming decades. And when such opportunities arise, developed democracies should do what they can to help. But the primary goal of U.S. and European foreign policy should not be to promote, to promote democracies in countries where it does not already exist. Instead, it should be to protect democracy in those countries where it is now seriously at risk. Just as democracy promotion developed gradually, democracy protection will take time to evolve. But there are some immediate steps that the United States and its allies should take. As Warsaw restricts press freedom, Radio Free Europe should restart its Polish language broadcast as it did its, uh, as it did its Hunga Hungarian language broadcast in 2020. In turn, Voice of America should monitor changes in India that might justify a new Hindi language program. Organizations such as the National Endowment for Democracy should step up their activities in such places, a shift of resources that is increasingly crucial as governments in those countries stifle civil civil society and crack down on non-governmental organizations. A serious commitment to democracy protection would also mean using diplomatic tools to put pressure on backsliding allies. This would necessarily involve sticks as well as carrots. One potential stick could be the expanded use of targeted sanctions against officials who work to subvert democratic institutions. Another would be to delay or cancel planned initiatives that would boost anti-democratic governments, such as Pentagon's intention to move thousands of U.S. troops to Poland. Democracy protection will also require a greater focus on the connection between foreign policy and domestic politics. Of late, commentators and policymakers have begun to emphasize how international issues, such as free trade, affect domestic policies. Unless ordinary citizens believe that the liberal international order will improve their daily lives, they will be unwilling to carry its burdens. But the link is just as strong in other directions. Citizens who lose faith in democratic values or no longer believe in their political system 
can hardly be effective advocates for democracy. Leaders in developed democracies need to take on autocratic challenges in their midst, but they must avoid doing so by illiberal means. This can be a tough line to walk. Many democracies, for instance, are increasingly willing to ban extremist political parties, restrict speech deemed hateful, and censor social media platforms. The efficacy of all these measures is doubtful. What is certain, however, is that budding autocrats often use strikingly similar laws and regulations as cover for concentrating power in their own hands. The link between foreign and domestic policy is also a reason to stop autocrats abroad from limiting what citizens of democracies can stay at home, can say at home. Over the past several years, China has mounted a concerted campaign to deter citizens, municipalities, and corporations elsewhere from criticizing its human rights record. In Germany, for example, the city of Heidelberg in 2019 removed a Tibetan flag flown outside its city hall after pressure from Chinese diplomats. Following economic threats from the Chinese government that same year, the National Basketball Association criticized Daryl Murray, then the general manager of the Houston Rockets, for supporting pro-democratic protesters in Hong Kong. Although it will likely prove impossible to completely prevent this sort of muzzling, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act of 1977 might serve as a model for an effective response. That U.S. law creates a major deterrent to engaging in graft by imposing stiff punishments on corporations that pay, pay bribes to foreign officials. A similar deterrent could be created by legislation in the United States and Europe that would prohibit corporations and other organizations from punishing their employees for criticizing the policies of autocratic regimes. By tying the hands of organizations such as Nike, Volkswagen, and Houston Rockets, such laws would make it far easier for them to resist outside pressure to silence their employees. Wow, what'd you think of that one, David? Yeah, I, I don't know how the FCPA will work for... So, I mean, it's just a huge part of their market is in China. And China says, we don't want you to do this. Or, And the Houston Rocket guy, he comes out and says, you know, these people are fighting for democracy in Hong Kong, and, and I stand with them. And he did it on his own personal account. And the United States says, we're going to just cut off. I mean, the Chinese government said, we're going to cut off all funding. You're going to lose your broadcast rights to the NBA. And LeBron comes out and he's like, this Daryl Morey, he's the worst. He needs to think before he talks. Yeah, you love democracy, but you know what's more important? Basketball in China. And that's basically what LeBron said, because where you stand depends on where you sit. And Hong Kong is not responsible for LeBron and all of his buddies making millions and millions more dollars every year. The Chinese government is. Um, it's crucial to the league. So yeah, you're not going to support democracy in Hong Kong if 30% of your market is in China. And that's the difficult thing. Uh, you know, using U.S. laws to punish these corporations, uh, maybe they'll remain Western corporations, or maybe the Chinese consumer market will lead them to say, well, we're going to take our brand and we're going to incorporate in Beijing. You know, at some point, the Chinese consumer market will grow to the point where that looks like a viable option for them. We don't want to keep getting hit with fines. 
let's just incorporate in China. And China will probably welcome that because it'll just make them stronger. Mm -hmm. They want to, they those connections worldwide, that's exactly what they want. So the more economic connections they make, which they can and they are, the stronger they become. Yeah, the free Tibet movement, like the city of Heidelberg. I remember when I was in college, you know, ages and ages ago, it was big. People were talking about it. It was, it was a thing. Well, Tibet's not free and no one's talking about it anymore. And I think that has to do with the efficacy of Chinese people. Uh, there's a reason why Chinese officials got the city of Heidelberg to take down the Tibetan flag, because that's an issue that they're focused on. And it's an awareness campaign, Free Tibet, that is 20 years old, 25, 30 years old. I don't know exactly. I don't know the timeline of, you know, Chinese occupation of Tibet. But um, it's a, it's been an issue. It's been an issue for 30 years, bare minimum. Mm -hmm. And the Chinese have sort of slowly and strategically gone in and sort of taken that issue out of the front of minds of people. And you don't hear about it anymore. I don't hear about it anymore. Of course, I'm not on a college campus. More people might be passionate about that issue still on college campuses. But it was a considerable issue, you know, 20 years ago when I was at school. Um, yeah. I mean, it's fascinating to me. The thing is, they are pressure campaigns. They work. I think I think that's the point. That's the point. Like, okay, they're going to come and go. And so, like Tibet is a good example. Uh, these these campaigns are going to come. And if you wait long enough, they're going to go. They're mm -hmm. going to forget it. They're not going to talk about it. So why do it? Well, you do do it because it does make a difference. Mm -hmm. It does make people aware of things. Uh, and so, yeah. They're going to try to crush them and they're going to try to silence them and not change. It's not going to make a change, but it raises the awareness. Yeah. And so I think it's not the value that may not be just in that one decision. The value is in the mood of uh, having an open type of dialogue so that these kinds of things collectively can be addressed. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's fascinating, too, that they work. The only reason China does the pressure campaigns is because... When they do, they're successful. Yeah, it works. Yep. And it's and it's you think uh, uh, you know the last president we had, I think it was just remarkable uh, how he campaigned and he was very effective. Mm -hmm. Says, oh, well, tell me what his platform was. Tell me what he stood for. Yeah, he didn't have a platform. He was one of the first in modern times yeah. to not have a platform. He used the Nothing. platform from 2016. Um, so it's like, yeah, we're not going to submit a platform. We're going to use the same one that we used in 2016. And I just pose this question to you. Do you feel like the world was the same in 2016 as it was in 2020? <laughs> <laughs> I won't even answer. To me, that's rhetorical. Yeah. To me, the answer uh, is best not verbalized. It's just felt. Mm-hmm. If you know what I mean. So I think we're here at his solutions phase. Well, this was part of a solutions phase. We should promote, what was it? They they use these terms, and I think they think they're clever. Uh, protect democracy, not promote democracy. That's what was his thing. Was that what he's saying? Right. Yeah, he's, that's exactly what he's saying. Yeah. yeah. Rather than promoting it, protect what already exists, uh, fledgling. So actually, that's a good point. Uh 
it's a good perspective to have. Uh, if that's true, instead of promoting or protecting, then what does that really mean? And how does that shift your foreign policy uh, like today? Uh, how would you go about dealing with your allies, uh, your adversaries? So that probably has a significant change in how you deal with foreign policy. Mm -hmm. So you're not, you're just protecting what exists. You're not trying to promote what doesn't exist. So how does that, so you're not going to be really, so the people who don't have democracy, so then do you still deal with them as if they're allies? I think you do. I mean, honestly. Yeah, you do. Very interesting. That's why it's tough. It's And set, set two different sets of rules just because of how the government is structured. That's right. It's like, what if Europe is like, you know, we have rank order voting. And so you say, I want this person the most. I want this person second most. You know, they do that in Europe and a lot of countries in Europe. And right. it's not first past the post. And so what happens is that more parties are involved. And there's a more more diversity of ideas. Because when you have a first past the post, like whoever gets more votes wins, you sort of cleave towards the edges. You sort of, you go as far right or as far left and you try to capture as much of this as you can or as much of this as you can. Um First past the post, it's like, well, you want to get this middle. So everyone's sort of hanging out in the middle trying to get these votes. And the fringe doesn't get as much attention as it does in America. And what if Europe, the countries with rank order voting said, yeah, first past the post, it's basically just gives you the most extreme viewpoints. You don't get anyone in the center. So we're going to call that not democracy. And we're only going to associate with countries that do rank order voting. I mean, um, the devil's that's in the a, details. That's a very good argument. It's a very good argument. Because because uh, first past the post is saying, you know, well, that you're just promoting uh, extremism. Mm -hmm. so, oh, we have democracy. Your democracy is promoting extremism. That could be the argument. Yeah. Which is a legitimate argument. It's, it's tricky, very tricky. And these other these other ones that are saying, oh, you're not dem democratic. Well, we have we have rank order voting. Yeah. So we and actually we have a diversity of ideas. We have people in the center that actually have a say in government. You don't because you your system is set up to elect the most extreme people on either and, side. And therefore, we're more democratic than you are. Mm -hmm. um, so should we read the final section? Yes. Reform or perish. Back to the article. A final step in heading off the authoritarian resurgence would be to reform two of the liberal international order's foundational institutions, the European Union and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. The Americans and Europeans who designed those bodies assumed that their own countries would never experience serious democratic backsliding. As a result, neither organization has straightforward means for suspending or expelling a member whose character has fundamentally changed. This is particularly problematic for the European Union, which requires its members to sacrifice an unusually high degree of sovereignty to join the bloc. Although national politicians sometimes find it hard to explain this to their voters, there are some compelling reasons for the agreement. On their own, most EU countries are too small to tackle transnational problems such as climate change or significantly influence world politics. 
Since these countries share a commitment to democracy and the rule of law, giving up a measure of independence enables them to promote their shared values. According to the same logic, however, the rise of authoritarian leaders within the EU states deeply undermines the bloc's legitimacy. It may be rational for citizens in the Netherlands to pool some of their country's sovereignty with that of nearby democracies, such as Greece or Sweden, as their interests are presumably aligned. But it is hard to explain politically or justify morally why rules set in part by would-be dictators in Budapest and Warsaw should bind Dutch citizens. If policymakers in Brussels don't address that contradiction, the EU will face a legitimacy crisis of existential proportions, one that its current institutions are entirely ill-equipped to solve. NATO faces a serious, similar problem. Like the EU, the alliance was founded, as the treaty's preamble makes clear, on a determination, quote, to safeguard the principles of democracy, individual liberty, and the rule of law. Since the alliance's primary purpose has always been military, however, it has long tolerated some violations of these principles. Portugal, one of NATO's original members, was a dictatorship at the time of the alliance's founding. In the decades after 1952, when Greece and Turkey joined, both countries remained in good standing, despite their occasional control by military dictatorships. The problem that NATO faces today, however, is different. Even when Greece, Portugal, and Turkey were dictatorships, they remained reliable members of the alliance during the Cold War. They clearly sided with democratic countries such as the United States, rather than communist powers such as the Soviet Union. Now some member states, including the Czech Republic, Hungary, Slovenia, and Turkey, appear to favor China and Russia over the United States. The Turkish military may have even attacked a U.S. commando outpost in Syria in 2019. These internal contradictions are unsustainable. A mutual defense pact that includes countries willing to fire on another member's troops will quickly lose all credibility. Ejecting a member from NATO, however, is even more difficult than doing so in the EU. Although some lawyers have suggested clever workarounds, the treaty does not explicitly contain any mechanism for suspending or expelling a member state. In both organizations, fixing these flaws would take enormous political capital, necessitate serious diplomatic pressure, and potentially require a complete legal or organizational reinvention. All of these are good reasons why democratic leaders likely lack the appetite for making the necessary reforms. But without mechanisms to ensure that member states either stay aligned with each organization's mission or exit it, the EU and NATO will drift into dysfunction and irrelevance. The politicians who are serious about democracy protection must prioritize reforming these institutions, even if doing so leads to serious internal conflict. Member states whose actions are no longer in line with the core mission of EU or NATO must either change course or accede to rules that make it possible to expel them. If these reforms prove impossible, however, it may be better to refound both organizations on a more sustainable basis than to let them decay. European leaders are starting to wake up to the threat of democratic backsliding in their midst. A new U.S. administration has pledged to defend democracy against illiberal threats. For this determination to be translated into meaningful action, statesmen and diplomats will need to look beyond the traditional diplomatic playbook to address the threat that resurgent authoritarians pose. The world's democracies need to commit to bold action. If they do, they will no doubt face an arduous and uncertain journey, one that will cost them political capital and inspire blowback. The alternative, however, is incomparably worse. The end. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, again, I, I think uh, the this part here is, uh, uh, I think it uh, 
to me, I got the feeling it moves from theory to practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it moves from, from idealism to pragmatism. It's like, look, this is what you got to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, you started you started here, uh, but just because you say that doesn't mean you're going to stay there. Uh, just the realism, the reality of of the, the fact of the matter is that things change. I like how I don't know. This is this is the way the world works. But Portugal was a dictatorship. Greece and Turkey slipped in and out of military dictatorships. But that was okay until they started not doing the things that we wanted. So are the rules really important if it was okay before? (laughs) The rules are designed to ensure that democratic countries are in the alliance. But the rules never ensured that. But it didn't matter because there was no negative consequence from the fact that the rules didn't ensure that. (laughs) And now that there's negative consequences, we need to do something about the rules. And it's like, well, maybe you should have done something about the rules when the stakes were lower. And what was the reason for the rules in the first place? Was it for what the rules stated or the rules there for some other uh, ulterior uh, motive? The spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. We want Portugal in the alliance because they're in Western Europe. Yeah, sure, they may be a dictatorship, not a democracy, but we can't have Portugal be part of the Eastern Bloc. So even though their political system is antithetical to NATO, they can be part of NATO. And it's like, so even though in our mission statement, it says we want democracies, we're going to admit a member state on our founding, that's a dictatorship. Because the (laughs) rules don't really matter. Because it's not about democracy or dictatorship. It's about uh, collective... It's about more of the, the, the politics and economics and the collective bargaining and and the strength of the union. Like they're talking about with India and Poland, geostrategic importance. Geostrategic if, importance, yeah. If you possess geostrategic importance to the West, they will tolerate misbehavior. Mm-hmm. And so when you don't, when you uh, begin looking at... Um, when you don't tolerate democracies, uh, usually it's not about the democracy. I mean, it's about it's not about that. It's about something else. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, this we need to change this form of government. If if they have something you want or if they're standing in your way. But if if a dictator takes over a Balkan state or something, let's say Serbia or Bosnia-Herzegovina, um, and they look too much aligned with Russia, you say, well, we need intervention in Kosovo. We need to send our troops in there because it's a humanitarian crisis. But maybe it was a humanitarian crisis because the leader of the dominant state in the Balkans looks like he would have ended up being aligned with the former Soviet Union. And if you send in your troops, you might actually end up with a democratic outcome. But the democratic outcome is not what's important. If that dictator would have been aligned with the West, you may have never sent in troops. So it's not about the democratic outcome. It's that the democratic outcome sort of engenders leaders that are aligned with you. I think there's a similar argument in Yemen, because we we talked at Yemen uh, uh, with the parties, the the conflict there. Yeah. So the Houthis would win a democratic election. Yeah, they would. But the Saudis are our ally. Yeah. And... 
So, I mean, that's that's tough because the Houthis would not be our ally. We just we've been arming the Saudis and <laughs> they've been starving out the people that would win a democratic election in a landslide for the last 3 years. That's and it's right. like when they win that democratic and the Houthis are in power, do you think Yemen would be a friendly state towards the United States after we helped their northern neighbor <laughs> starve them for 3 years? It's it's fascinating uh, I think these discussions are important because you think, yes, democracy. I want democracy. Authoritarian backsliding. I want to prevent that. Great power competition, you know, China versus the West. Well, we need to sort of safeguard it, like, because we're conditioned to think in a Cold War mentality where, you know, uh, the, the policy of detente, it's like, we got to stop the spread of communism. And, but really, in the end, at the end of the day, when you look at what happens and the decisions that are made and where we offer military support, it's always more about power than ideology. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And I, yeah, and uh, uh, like the idea of the back, back in the 50s, 40s and 50s after World War II, you know, and also the Cold War, you know, it was always about democracy and communism. Uh, democracy was good, communism was bad. That's that was kind of like a black and white kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, up and down, right and left, uh, good and bad. Um, but uh, why was democracy good? Because that was what we had, and we had a good life, and so we used we used our good life to define democracy as good. Yeah. But what if democracy voted in uh, an authoritarian state? You know. And also, I remember uh, also back in the uh, 60s and 70s, uh, like uh, some of the Central Central uh, uh, American, Latin American countries, mm-hmm. you know, they had dic- dictatorships down there too. Yeah. Uh, but they were benevolent and everything worked well. Until they were benevolent dic- to us. I don't know about their own, to own their own people. Exactly. Exactly. So is that good or is that bad? Mm-hmm. Well, we'll let them have them because they're benevolent to us. But then what happened internally? Yeah. Anyway, it, it's it's like you say, David, it's very, very tricky. It's very difficult. And if a country does not create any ruffle any of our feathers, we may not hear about a crisis that's going on there. But if a ruler is trying to take over a country in Central America and the pu- puppet dictator is our man, we may say, ooh, these bad guys are trying to take over this country down there. we got to go help, you know? Yeah, I guess what I was getting at is good and bad is us and them. Yes. Good for us, bad bad for them. Good good and bad is defined as us and them. To go back to the reality show analogy, (laughs) we watched the show The Challenge on MTV. It's one of my favorite shows. And people will always (laughs) act in their own interest. And if any if, if anyone is self-sacrificing, they're an idiot. You know, it's you always just be as selfish as possible. And I think that uh, that's the what I've learned from that show. <laughs> be as selfish as possible. Uh, but if you screw someone else over in that show, in your head you you do your uh, individual, you know, your confessional. You're like, well, it's just part of the game. I know we, I've, we've known each other for 25 years, but we're here at the end, and I want to win a million dollars, and it's me or him, so I choose me. You know, it's just part of the game. It's, it's business. And then the person that gets screwed over and gets voted off, they'll say, I thought we were friends. 
I can't believe that you're not a man of your word. And it's like, what are they supposed to do? Just like give you a million dollars? But when people are fighting for limited resources, sometimes it's just business becomes it's me, not you. I mean, it'll always become it's me, not you. Yeah. And that that to me, that's just a little a small little vignette of exactly what foreign policy is all about. Mm -hmm. It's us and them. It's it's what's good for us. What's good for you. It's going to be good for you, and I'll support that as long as it's good for us. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that's, I think that's kind of what he was saying. Instead of promoting democracy, if you protect democracy, that's better for us than trying to promote democracy. Uh, that's what he's saying. Mm -hmm. you know. And also, maybe why? I don't know, maybe because it's easier to protect what, what exists uh, than, and that may be the, the baby steps in the direction of trying to have a better world order that's going to be in your favor. Yeah. I you think know? it's interesting, though, you said, you know, we were taught cap communism versus democracy. And it's like, I see communism more as a command economy, well, not like true Marxist communism, but Soviet communism as a command economy, central, uh, central planning. And right. America is more capitalism you know, more free markets. Of course, it's mixed. It's a mixed economy because the federal government built the interstate highway systems. There's the military industrial complex. Those are all government dollars. We tax our people at 50% of their earnings, you know, 60% of their earnings in the 40s and 50s. That's, I mean, that's half communist, right? If half of your paycheck <laughs> is going to the federal government, you're half communist. Um, so it's not really communism versus democracy. It's democracy versus what type of political system did they have? It was authoritarianism centered around a small group of party apparatchiks, the Politburo. So it was authoritarianism versus democracy then, not communism versus democracy, because they organized their government, because it wasn't truly communist, A. The government wasn't really communist. It was an authoritarian government where there's, you know, a group of maybe 100 communist party officials that are calling the shots throughout the whole entire country. Right. So right. it's not really communism. I think that communism becomes a catch-all. And then it becomes a catch-all like in America. It's like, we want to give you health care. That sounds an awful lot like communism. I don't want to live in Russia. And it's like, oh, okay, well, if you get in a car accident, it'll be 100K. It's like, that's not fair. <laughs> it's like, well, you voted against it. <laughs> yeah. Just like the reality shows. Yeah. If it's in your favor, that's the way it should be. If it's not in your favor, that's not fair. Yeah. And so it could be the, the very same decision. If it's in your favor, then it's good. If it's in the other person's favor and it's not your favor, it's bad. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, it's the us and them. And, um, and that I, actually, that's human nature. And I'm just saying, when I read this stuff and I think of this, I keep going back to that. Uh, people don't change. Uh, like you're looking at history, the great court. I think that's a great idea, David. I think every learned person, what was it, uh, uh, Socrates? Was it Socrates or Aristotle said every learned person should know mathematics? I, I can't remember which one it was. Uh, but I think every learned person should be a student of history. Because in history is looking at how, how people react and how people act. And that's the reality of our civilization. And some things don't change. Some things do. Technology changes. But people don't necessarily change. Mm-hmm. You're looking up something? I'm just looking up this scene. I like this scene from uh, 
Lord of the Rings. And Saruman, like I just talking about how, oh, it's communism. Oh, communism. We got to fight that because you're conditioned to fight communism. But it's like, is it really communism? Like, is what's being proposed actually communism? And how do you rile up people? Well, you just tell them what you want them to think is true, and then you send them off. So this is Saruman convincing the dumb men to go after the people of the Rohan. We will die for Saruman. Oh, you can't hear it, can you? No. Let me uh, back this up a little bit. And I'll share with you so you can hear it. You got dirty teeth. Yep. All right, you ready? Okay. So the horsemen are the good guys, and Saruman's <laughs> the bad guy. The guy with the bad teeth is a bad guy. Die for Saruman. The horsemen took your land. They drove your people into the hills to scratch a living off rocks. <laughs> Take back the lands they stole from you. Burn every village! We have only to remove. Kind of looked like January 6th, didn't it? You sure did. That guy in the middle looks like kind of reminds me of Trump, doesn't it? Yeah. They took your election. Go get it back from them. I don't know. It's... I just I've been thinking about that clip because you say the horsemen took your land. They're taking this from you. Go get it back, and then you know you unleash a wild mob. Uh, that doesn't have anything to do with this article, but it's been on my mind. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think it does. I think I think that's how people are. Mm-hmm. People don't change. I mean, people have done this for ever since the dawn of time. Yeah, and I think. Like, democracy as an ideal is important to people, even if you believe in authoritarianism. So as we slide towards authoritarianism, in Georgia, they say democracy is important and we have to protect it. And the way we protect it is making sure that anyone who would vote against us doesn't get to vote. Because we're the party of democracy. Like, so, you know, if they don't support our position, they don't deserve to vote. And they don't deserve to vote because we're the ones that are safeguarding democracy. This legislation is designed to safeguard democracy. And we can't let anyone who doesn't believe in democracy like we do vote. And so we're protecting democracy. So you, so you, you sort of use democracy to, to justify your actions when really what you're doing is sliding into an authoritarian state. And you're undermining democracy. Yes, but you got to be careful. Again, what I want to say is that that's not necessarily a, an indictment on uh, democracy or the United States, that's just human nature. Uh-huh. They're just trying to protect themselves and they will hurt democracy just to help themselves. And so it's not about democracy. They're using that as a banner again, mm-hmm. uh, j- just so that they can be in power. And you're right, they're moving toward authoritarianism. Uh, but uh, democracy is fine as long as I get the authority. Yes, <laughs> as long, yeah, as, I as, long as I win. The, the, the point of democracy is I cast my vote and who I cast my vote for is the winner. It's like, that's not really how it works. That's how I understand it to work. So if I cast my vote and the person I voted for doesn't win, there's something wrong with democracy. Yeah. We have to fix democracy. So, oh, I'm still sharing my screen. I think that we should call this an episode. Does that sound okay? I think so. Yeah, I think we're ready. I think that this, again, uh, I I really enjoy this kind of 
thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we're not we uh, we uh, do try to solve the world's problems, and we have the intention to. But uh, I really like well one thing. The other thing too. Before we go, mm-hmm. uh, I like I like what I like is the what, what I would call which is truly the meta analysis of this article. Uh, Yasha Monk is an associate professor at John Hopkins University, a senior fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations, the founder of Persuasion. We looked at Persuasion, uh, but he's also he's a professor, associate professor at John Hopkins University mm-hmm. and uh, a fellow of a Council of Relations. So, as you say, where you stand is where you sit. Uh, depends on where you sit. You know, he's in the United States. Yeah. And he's he's in John Hopkins University. How would this article be different if someone was from Australia or from UK uh, or even from from India? Or Tongji uh, University or Sun Yat-sen University in China. Tongji University in China, yeah. How would this article be different? Uh, and also, how would it be different if it was if it was from uh, if it was uh, edited or if it was allowed to be released, uh, say from China or that it was not or from Hong Kong. I don't think yeah. this this would not be published if a Chinese academician wrote it. <laughs> nope, not at all. Uh, what if it was from the UK? How would it be different? Really, how, how would it be different? I'm not, it's, it's rhetorical. It's mm-hmm. rhetorical. So I'm saying, uh, you know, when we, we're getting ready to wrap up here, uh, but the meta-analysis, looking looking at it from different perspectives, that's what meta-analysis means, mm-hmm. is that I think that is so healthy in a free dialogue. Say, yes, but look at it this way. Yes, but look at it this way. Yes, but look at it this way. And actually look at, look at it from authoritarian perspective. Well, they'll say, we do have benefits that a democracy does not have. Yeah, We can make things happen. Look what China's doing. How they uh, handle the coronavirus, and they're they're capturing markets. So mm-hmm. there are some things they could. They will argue that there are some things better using an authoritarian government than a dem- de- democratic government. So the point is looking at all different sides, and then will help you solidify why you believe what you believe. And some that'll make you question it, but also back up and think, why do I believe this way? Mm-hmm. And sometimes that is extremely helpful. And valuable, and also in arguments—not uh, arguments, but in uh, well, the technically arguments. Uh, when you start moving forward, say in foreign affairs or in political, domestic affairs or foreign affairs, uh, and even business, uh, always think how the other person thinks. You know, how, what is where do they sit, and what is their stand based on where they sit to know how to deal with people. I think you, people deal with people only about what they, where they are at. Mm-hmm. They don't think of the other person to know how to deal with them. Yeah. Okay. And it's kind of like us and them. Mm-hmm. Them is bad. Us is good. Not necessarily. Maybe some of the things you're doing is not that good too. Yeah. So, look at both sides. Look at both it's, sides. it's easy to criticize others. It's fun too. It's much harder to do it for yourself. <laughs> uh huh. But it's healthy. Mm-hmm. It's healthy. So I think we should leave Thanks it for- there. I think so. Is there anything you want to say to wrap up? Are you ready to wrap up, David? I'm ready. I got the music playing. Okay. Uh, Sons of Sequoia, episode, uh, what, 57? 57. We want to say, keep on talking. 
but listen more than you talk and try to understand what the other person is saying. See you next time. Bye.